You're listening to the What Works Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Todd, with my co-host, Alex Gary. And today, Jeff Glazer from Ogden Glazer Schaefer, also a professor at the UW Law School. Welcome to the What Works Podcast. Awesome. Thanks. So what do you do? I know you're a lawyer. Yeah. Right. But what do you do specifically? What's your what's kind of your focus? Uh, my focus... These days are sort of split in half. About half of what I do is technology-based, so I'm doing a lot of research and work in uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency stuff, so that's sort of a whole other interesting space. Uh, but primarily, I do a lot of work in food and beverage, so I started out in doing legal work in the brewing industry, um, particularly in the startup space and in the regulatory. So there can be a lot of... Uh, legal complications, we'll say, around starting and running breweries. Um, so my specialty is in finding creative, uh, solving problems creatively uh, for, uh, for, for breweries, wineries, distilleries uh, that are uh, finding their lives complicated by the law. And that's the, so I, I can't remember when we when we were talking last, but you you mentioned kind of if you could brew it, if you could distill it, and maybe now soon if you could smoke it, you guys are doing yeah. you're doing law work around that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you can turn it into alcohol, we've represented it. The only thing we haven't done yet is sake. There aren't a whole lot of sake manufacturers in the United States. Um, although we did have somebody that was doing rice beer, but it wasn't sake. Okay. Um, but we've done you know breweries, wineries, cideries, meaderies, uh, distilleries. Uh, we got our first kombucha maker last year. We've done some sort of like weird, like alternative grain stuff. So like the rice beer stuff. So um, I've heard the term ambulance chaser. You're an alcohol chaser. I am an alcohol chaser. I, I live my life instead of in emergency rooms. Uh, I hang out at brew pubs. That is awesome. So you, you, and and in your in your non work life, yeah. you also have been very involved in in brewing and breweries and uh, yeah. tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, once upon a time, like I, I don't know. I, so I used to be a I used to be a software developer, and uh, I worked for a bunch of Fortune 500 companies doing like e-commerce software development in the early days of the internet. And I hated my job. I was good at it, but I hated it. Um, and so I said, I'm not going to do this anymore, even though it pays me very well. I want to do something that I enjoy doing. I want to do something that I'm passionate about. Um, and I was passionate about the law. Uh, I didn't really know I was passionate about the law, but at the time I was doing software development and I was passionate about open source software um, and sort of weird licensing schemes that go around open source software. Um, but to me, you know, we only, we only have one chance at this thing. So do something you're interested in. Right. And it, it was hard to get started. Right, I had to convince my wife when I was unemployed that drinking beer was for the betterment of our uh, partnership, <laughs> and that's a hard sell. Yeah, um, <laughs> you should write a book on that. That would yeah, sell. Yeah. Um, so, but on the other hand, when you're passionate about something, when you um, when you find something that that you're really interested in, and it, you know, I mean, the cliche is that it's no longer work, right? But that that's sort of the reality of it for me, because yeah, I started Madison Beer Review. It, it, you know, in terms of entrepreneurship, I started Madison Beer Review. I started Madison Craft Beer Week. I started a law firm that represents breweries, wineries, distilleries. Um, 
but it all grows out of this common curiosity that I have about beer and alcohol production and local economies and how communities are made better by local production and, and local uh, monetary flow and you know businesses. And it's all in there. Um, and that, to me, is what has kept this so interesting. And so, you know, I, again, the cliche is if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Um, it's all work. I, you know, I'm not going to say it's not work, but uh, I love doing it. Um, it's a lot of fun. And so um, I don't really think of it. You know, people talk about work-life balance, and my work is my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but my work lets me hang out in brew pubs, so yeah. it's a pretty good work. And it seems that you you're, I, I mean this affectionately. You're you're sort of a geek, very much so. Yeah, yeah. It, and I and I and I love that. I'm a geek too. Yeah, which I think enables you, and I kind of see it, and I hear it in your voice that you get really deep into these types of things. I mean, you're talking, yeah. you're not, you're you're drinking beer, yeah. you know, you know, f- for the betterment of society, let's say, but. Uh, you're also doing a magazine on it, and and but but in the middle of it, you're talking, you're you're thinking about how this impacts economies, and yeah. you're getting deep involved in the research. So how do, how does how does this Bitcoin and cryptocurrency thing? <laughs> so we're now going to take a hard left on this talk. I, I, yeah. I was going like, to go look into the geek thing, but we'll, we'll come back. We're going to go to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency because this is this is that's a truly geek thing. Very yeah. ums down again today. How, <laughs> what I else is it, new? It's on my phone. <laughs> He's trying to he's trying to day trade cryptocurrency. It sounds like a disaster in the making. I've, I've lost seven dollars on Bitcoin out of well, the twenty at the day. Seven, oh yeah, about out seven 20. out of twenty. <laughs> Let's keep this 20. in perspective. <laughs> That's okay. You're down thirty percent. Thirty-five. Come on, <laughs> you know, it'll make a comeback. So how does how does cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and that is that just a passion project of yours or how? Yeah, so, I dare you wrap this into brewing. Yeah, right. I mean, so here, here's where the the Bitcoin beer bar. Here's where things are really interesting for me, right? Like, it, it all sort of goes back to I, I wrote my first computer game when I was in fifth grade, right? I mean, it's all oh, sort of goes back to this it. sort of like cyberpunk youth that I had. Yeah, um, and I don't mean to like glorify that. Well, I kind of do. It's a lot of fun. It was really we'll get yeah. your mom on. To talk um, about it. What's that? We'll, we'll no. get your mom on. See yeah, I know. Oh, yeah, no, my, my parents were not thrilled. Um, but um, but it, sort of what came out of all of that was um, was sort of this DIY ethic, right, of, um, of taking control of, of who you are and your, and your own destiny, right, and looking around the world and saying, can I rely on those around me or can I create a situation that's stable for myself and the people who are around me and we can do that at the micro scale, which is personal responsibility, right? And we can extrapolate this to politics and I'll try to keep that out of it, although inevitably it ends up not staying out of it because i think it's a year and a half we've done almost no politics thank god yeah no and but i think all of this ends up getting circled back in right but if, if we think about it at the micro level right i can have responsibility for myself but we also have the people that we care about the people that we interact with the people that we work with the people our children our families whatever our communities and how do we create stable situations and you know just in my own life we've had huge recessions we've had huge you know we won't call it depression because we're not allowed to call them depressions i guess anymore but we've had these huge economic waves and so how as communities do we stabilize that and how do we um how do we create our own sense of of 
self in all of this without losing it, right? And I think cryptocurrencies, uh, blockchain sort of enable this on a global scale. Um, I think as a technology, um, it it allows it allows us to uh, sort of take control of our of our interactions um, in a way that you know, frankly, economics hasn't allowed us to in the past, right? So if I want to, uh, if I want to just trade money between me and Alex, right? Normally, I would have to go to my bank, write a check or something like that, right? But through the magic of cryptocurrency, I can just hand you three Bitcoin and or seven Bitcoin and make up your losses for the day. Um, <laughs> um, but my, even more so need, than just me and email. Alex. Do you need my email address? <laughs> <laughs> um, but the but but the reality is that that community, my community, is no longer just the people sitting in this room. My community are people all over the world, right? Uh, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, and they were saying that uh, their their daughter, who's like ten or something like that, uh, plays video games, and her best friend in video games lives in Japan. Right. She has more in common with a 10 year old in Japan than she does with the 10 year olds at her school. So when she transacts with this kid, I mean, it's really an international transaction. And if she wants to send that kid money, that's dollars that are crossing international borders. Right. And so blockchain cryptocurrency sort of enable all of this um, and they enable communities to form in ways that sort of transcend geographic boundary. And similarly, I'm gonna tie this back to beer. Um, our breweries and our brew pubs tie together our communities locally and geographically, but also through brands in, uh, in ways that transcend boundaries, right? So um, if I want to identify with, you know, stoner beer culture, I can drink Lagunitas, right? And, and by, and, or uh, Oscar Blues, right? Oscar Blues, every single can uh, can be turned into a bong. It has a little, uh, it has a little in place to do an indentation so that you can turn it into a, into a pipe. Right? Do you know that? I didn't know that. Yeah. Next time you look at an Oscar Blues can, <laughs> there's a tiny little like graphical mesh screen at the bottom okay. of the can, and the idea is that you put a little indentation there and you poke a little hole in it, then you can put your weed there and smoke out. Crazy. Of the, the, the goal yeah. of the What Works podcast is to inform. Yeah. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So we have done that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Alex is <laughs> struggling. <laughs> He's trying um, to figure out how to tie this. So, <laughs> so, is, so we have we have these communities really that that transcend space, but are also part of our space, right? And I think I think breweries, wineries, distilleries are one way of of us having that sort of cultural identity and opening up ways of engaging with people. Um, and then I think Bitcoin, blockchain, cryptocurrency, whatever, are ways in which we can interconnect our, econ our, our, our economies in ways that more closely match our shared communities. So you're, you're, you're a highly social guy. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't start things like, you know, what was it, craft beer week, you know, if, if you weren't a highly social guy. Uh, and so it seems to me that you... You want to connect people together, yeah, 
and and beer is kind of one way to do that and it's just an interest of yours and it's, it happens to be an interest of uh, you know a reasonable size of the popul- number of population and then this idea of cryptocurrency and uh bitcoin and that type of stuff is, is a, a kind of that decentralization yeah. of control which allows community then to interact more freely yeah. uh, that's interesting and you're and you clearly are a tried and tried and true geek which is great and i i similarly i was writing software as a young as yeah. a young guy before you know before it was cool <laughs> We're cool now, though. Yeah, very cool. Yes, now. right. We're very almost cool. we're also almost at the end of cool, though. And I was like, oh, there's that old guy. Yeah, so, I I learned how to program Fortran. That's how cool I am. Oh, damn. Yeah, yeah. I didn't awful. go back. I I went to. Terrible. I was on basic. Because the one programming class I took, I took a f- class in Fortran, and I got a D minus. Oh. Even though you could get D minuses until I got one, um, <laughs> and it was the only programming class I ever took. Yet. I made a career out of programming before I was a lawyer, so take I that for what it's worth. I the whole the whole geek term, right? Yeah, sure. Because in a way, everybody has geek in them. I agree. There's something that they love that they geek about. Yep. Like Jason likes to joke about this, but I'm a geek on sports stats, and I'm especially a geek on local sports stats. I can, you know, somebody will walk in here and they'll give me their name. I'll be like, "You play tennis." At Guilford in 1982, and they'll just fall all over themselves that's creepy. because nobody. It is creepy. Remember that, but that's a geek thing to me. Yeah. I'm not a geek about anything else. Yeah, but we all. But when you can make money off what you geek about, yeah. that's kind of that's kind of the beauty of of, of you know, yeah. In you in some ways, I think uh, in some ways, at least for me, I mean, being a lawyer is kind of a weird thing. There's a there's a long history of 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 how lawyers work and and being lawyers, but. Um, my practice is one that um, it's very niche, and I believe in niches, right? And I'm passionate in my niches. And, and so um, if you want to find somebody in, in, that knows everything there is to know about you know, the law related to producing alcohol, I'm your guy, right? <laughs> um, but if you need a will... Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I wouldn't say rocket lawyer, but it's not me. Um, you know, so, um, so I'm not sort of that traditional lawyer. That's a, that's a general practitioner. Right. Um, and in some ways I think this is, this can be a future of the law. I don't know that in the past there, there haven't really been a whole lot of folks like us. I'm not going to say never, but I'm saying that sort of modern economy, the fact that I can have clients all over the state now um, and not just in my immediate area because the internet enables me to practice in Superior and mm-hmm. Racine as easily as I can practice in Madison. Well, the internet does mean niches are more important, right? Yeah. yeah. Because there is rocket lawyer. Yeah. I did my, my will That's that way. Right. I mean, why do I need to go to an attorney? I just filled out a few things. So a lot of the the revenue streams that were easy for attorneys are have dried up because of things like that. So isn't it more important actually to identify your niche? Yeah. When, I mean, when my clients come to me and, and my value proposition to my clients is that they're people who are trying to solve problems, right? And they might be what other people might consider to be trivial problems, which is how do I start a brewery, winery, distillery, whatever. Um, but they're problems nonetheless. Uh, and, so they come to me to help solve those problems. How do I how do I start up my company? How do I make money at this thing? And that's more than just a legal problem, right? That's a business problem too. And so having somebody like me that can sort of understand the uh, the 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 universe of space around what they're trying to do is really important, 
right? And that's something that you can't get from Rocket Lawyer. You can go to Rocket Lawyer and get an operating agreement, but you're not going to get an operating agreement that's specific to you and the three people that you're starting up this business with and how you're going to resolve disputes amongst yourselves. And you right? won't get any counsel, uh, won't get any counsel. That, that would tell you that the thing you're thinking is really boneheaded because this is not how the industry works. Exactly. And so by having that niche, by being a geek about the things that I'm a geek about, um, they're able to get the best counsel that they can uh, on that specific area. Now, when my clients, you know, when my brewery clients are getting divorces, I'm not going to be the person that does that work for them. They're mm-hmm. going to come to me and say, Jeff, hey, I don't like my wife anymore or I don't like my husband anymore. Uh, what do I do about that? I'm going to say, you should go talk to my friend who's a divorce lawyer, <laughs> right? So, um, but that's fine because when the divorce lawyer has two people that are getting divorced and they one of, one of them wants to start a brewery, they're going to send them to me, mm-hmm. right? So I don't have to do all the work. Yeah. I can just create relationships. And in my law practice, a good percentage of our clients are actually other lawyers. And those other lawyers are people who do things like divorces and litigation and all that other stuff that we don't do um, that send us work because they have a client that's starting up a brewery somewhere uh, and they don't know how to deal with that. Um, So by being a geek, it sort of enabled our business model um, to be, you know, to be a niche. And so we've, we've found our niches and we stick to them and we make relationships so that we can, we can solve problems or have other, help other people solve problems. So for, so, so for a potential client, yeah. let's talk about this idea of the, the practice of the law and your recommendations and, uh, for, uh, for somebody who wants to start a brewery because it's kind yeah. of a burgeoning, yeah. um, it may, I, I believe the rate is accelerating okay. at which people want to do breweries and wineries and distilleries and things like that. <laughs> what, what is the, what are, what are a handful pieces of advice that you give to those people? Um, yeah, that's a, it's a interesting question. So people that want to start breweries tend to come from one of three backgrounds. Um, they tend to be home brewers, uh, people who have brewed at home before, and they've had other people around who say, hey, you're really good at making homebrew. You should sell this stuff. Uh, that's one group. Uh, the other group are the hardcore scientists, and they see, uh, you know, they're biologists, engineers, they're uh, chemists, whatever. Um, and they see brewing as a science problem. Uh, and then it isn't a breaking bad situation, right? It, well, sometimes (laughs) (laughs) nobody's, nobody's not saying no, Um, (laughs) but it's not the usual flush down a bathtub with acid. Um, and then the other group are people who see market opportunities and you know, they wouldn't know how to make beer if you put them in a room with fermenting wort. So, um, it depends on sort of where you're coming from as to, as to what it is, but the generally, um, you need a team. Brewing is not a brewing is not a solo sport. Um, it is not something you can do by yourself. So if you're the if you're the technical person, right? You're one of those first two people. You need to find a salesperson. You need to find a business person, right? If you're the business person, you need to find a technical person. And it's not. It, it, it shouldn't be just some random dude off the street or lady off the street who's like, "Yeah, I know how to make beer." It needs to be people who are who are good at what they do. And brewing beer at the five gallon batch is, is not the same as brewing beer uh, at the 
15 barrel batch. Um, and so, you know, just because somebody's a good home brewer doesn't mean that skill is going to translate to commercial production. Um, so that's number one, right, is, is forming that team. Number two is understanding what your uh, financial capability is, right? You can, you can spend as much as you want starting a brewery, right? Um, minimum on a brewery, minimum you're going to be in for $100,000, period, uh, there's no way to really get below that um, in terms of in terms of standard commercial scale. If you're going to do like a little one barrel thing and you're just going to do it in a bar that you already own, all right, fine. But if you're going to do it at any sort of commercial scale, you're basically in for at least a hundred grand, um, and then you can kind of spend as much as you want beyond that. But understanding what your what your dollars are that you have available to you. Um, and scaling appropriately. One of the things that I one of the things that I see most frequently uh, in the brewing industry is people buying uh, buying beer systems that are too big for what they need. Right. So they're going into a space and they're going to buy a 15 barrel brew house because they have three hundred thousand dollars. And, you know, maybe they have five hundred thousand available to them. And they're going to spend three hundred of it on equipment. Well, that's kind of dumb, right? Because what are you going to use to build out your facility? And then they end up with this space that's $300,000 worth of equipment and lawn chairs, <laughs> right? And so if you... If the, minim you the minimalist bar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if you recognize, though, that instead of a 15-barrel system, we're not going to be selling that much beer for five years anyway. So go into a seven-barrel system, spend $150,000 on equipment, and then you can actually build out a nice brew pub that... A, a nice, you know, a nice tap room that people actually want to sit in and drink beer, right? Um, so thinking about how you're going to use your money and, and what you're going to and what you're going to use it for, and then finally is really the business model piece of it. And we spent some time today at our panel talking about the business model piece of it. Um, but you know, are you going to be selling out of your tap room or are you going to be trying to distribute? And if you're going to try to distribute, who's going to buy it? How are they going to buy it? Right? Do you plan on bottles? Do you plan on uh, tap sales? Um, do you plan on something else? Right? Mobcraft, uh, you can, they ship it all over the country, yeah. right? Kind of thing. Like, how are you going to get your beer out to the people who want to buy it? So, uh, so if anybody's listening, but not anybody, when, when people are listening, we had a 1 million cups. <laughs> Uh, beer panel, entrepreneur panel today, and, and Jeff was part of it. And Jason was in it, too. And you guys talked about uh, market, market saturation. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting in back, and here's what I'm thinking. We are on year eight of an economic expansion. Well, those don't happen. Those don't last forever. At some point, we're going to have a recession. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we've, we've got a lot of people who've invested lots of money into uh, an economy where people have lots of uh, disposable income. What happens to this beer economy when disposable income all of a sudden becomes scarce well i think it's not only just disposable income but i think i think the you've created a quantity of of smaller um smaller companies that if they if they contract by too much they, they could contract by 25 percent and not be around anymore right and if the can and 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 so if you reach that point of saturation where you have a lot of smaller entities and then the economy contracts, all these other, all, a lot of these entities have been struggling anyhow, and all of a sudden you put them out of business. I, I, that's, my, that's my feeling. I think we've seen that in other industries and other recessions. But what, what do you think, Jeff? Um, 
So at least for the at least for the medium term, um, so medium term meaning you know thinking five years out, um, I'm relatively optimistic about the brewing industry uh, in terms of continued expansion. Um, I agree with you, Jason, that um, at some point, I mean, over you know overall production if you if you look at volume production it stayed relatively stable or even decreased in beer uh, wine and spirits is growing kind of at the cost of beer um, but then if you start looking at at beer itself though what you're realizing is that almost all of the losses are being borne by uh, the large manufacturers being borne by anheuser-busch miller coors um, to some extent some of the global players although you know groups like diageo are are doing great right now because they're investing heavily in products that that sell to not white males um so uh but then when you look at where the gains are they are places like diageo at a global scale that are investing in not white males uh and then craft right and and I think there's still room for Kraft to take volume away from Anheuser-Busch Miller Coors. So I think, uh, I think for the next five years, while you're still going to see that production, stay, you know, that overall beer production is probably going to continue on its, on its trend of stable or slight decline. I think you're going to continue to see bites being taken out of Anheuser-Busch Miller Coors, and that being taken up by, uh, by craft beer. Now, if you look at craft beer, where is that going to come from? Um, a lot of the trends are on the super micro scale. Um, the regional and national craft breweries are having a really hard time right now. Um, people like Sam Adams are, are, are having a tough time. Sierra Nevada's having a tough time. Stone's having a tough time. I mean, they're still expanding, but it's not like the gangbusters that it was. And in some cases they're not expanding at all. Cause in a way they're almost seen like Miller and Coors, right? Uh, in, in a little I bit. Mean, they, I, they're I don't a think little I've bit had different. Miller or Coors or I've had one of those beers in five years because when I go somewhere, yeah, I want to find whatever the, you know, unique stuff is. Right? Yeah. And I'm, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a trendsetter. I'm a follower. Yeah. So I, I, you know. I think what you're seeing as well, and maybe Jeff, you can you can speak to this a little bit, is there's a movement towards experience. Yeah. Right. That's and right. I mean, it's, that's that is a consumer-driven thing across all industries. We want some sort of experience in this idea of craft brewing, and and like we talked about, you know, in our panel discussion, this idea of tap houses, and yeah. you go to the brewery. It's an experience that you immerse yourself in, and so you're willing to pay a little bit more for beer because because of the atmosphere, rather than just hey, I'm sitting in another bar drinking another, you know, MGD. So the do you, do you think that it's a necessity to incorporate experience uh, into this craft brewing thing, and and is that why craft brewing takes off? Um. So there's sort of the classic answer, the modern classic answer to this, which is yes, that you have to build out that that in order to have a modern brewery, that you have to have a tap room. We'll call it experience. What I would, the way I would prefer to think of it is less as sort of a, a carnival experience or an amusement park experience, and you can certainly get that if you've ever been up to Surly in in the Twin Cities. I mean, it's it's an adult wonderland of of beer. It's a fantastic place to go. Um, I'm writing that down because I'm going to Twin Cities in March. Oh yeah, yeah. Go check in on the on the. And you're not a big drinker. I mean, so. um, I'm an experiential person. It's you, you know I mean, it, it's an amazing place, um, and 
but I don't think that's necessarily that's not necessarily the future, so to speak. I think what that is, I mean that's tourism. Yeah. Um, I think where uh, I think where the industry is growing most is in these, you know, small. I'll call them microbreweries, although that's kind of a weird, Overused, sometimes yeah. technical answer. And uh, but whatever, um, are these you know sort of super small nano micro things that are you know not at the even citywide scale, but at the neighborhood scale, mm-hmm. right? And so. Um, you know, and those are places that are integrated into their communities. The ones that do it best are the ones that the people from their neighborhood are walking to the brewery and are there and are regulars every single day, or so, at least on some sort of obviously regular like in basis. Rockford. Mm-hmm. So Carlisle yeah. doesn't try to sell its beer on shelves or right. distribute. They just sell it at Carlisle. Yeah. And maybe a couple special events. Yeah. That's a microbrew. Sure. Yeah. Prairie Street, which is a really good brewery. They're trying to distribute, so yeah. that's like a different. Yeah, I mean, again, I kind of want to get away from the the microbrewery mm-hmm. sort of language. Um, I just think they're different models, right? And I'm not as down on the distribution model as I think a lot of other people who think about the econo- uh, the, the economics of beer are. Um, I think there is space to be a distribution brewery, even at the craft scale, even at the micro scale. Um, you have to be really smart about it. You have to be willing to self-distribute if you can, um, because there's a lot to be gained from self-distribution for as long as you can. Um, but you also have to think about who are the consumers that are buying this thing, and you have to take ownership of the distribution relationship. And so if you're going to self-distribute, that's great. If you can't self-distribute, either because the laws in your jurisdiction don't allow it or it's just a pain in the ass, then uh, then you have to have a relationship with your distributor. And when you're looking for them, you have to find distributors that you can work with because it's your customer at the end of the day. It's not the distributor's customer. It's yours. And you need to take ownership over those relationships. And I think, you know, in talking about what the third place is that people fail is if they're going to distribute or the third place that people need to think about when they're starting breweries. And this gets to the, to the consumer. Who's your consumer? What's your brand? Why are they buying it? Right. And taking ownership of that relationship and getting out and finding the people who uh, who are most connected with your brand, finding the ambassadors, finding the people uh, who get excited about what you do, getting your beer in front of those people. And your distributor isn't going to do it for you. They're going to tell you they will. They're going to say, oh, we're going to do these tastings at the at the grocery store and we're going to do all this. And they're going to do that for five months and then that's it. And you'll never hear from them again because you need to take ownership. You as the brewery, wine or whatever uh, manufacturer, you need to take ownership of, of that relationship. So uh, we we could talk to you for I know, <laughs> I know. for a long, long time. All day. This is a and and I have enjoyed uh, I have enjoyed the 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 number of times <laughs> that you and I have talked in over all sorts of topics, including I think that time when we started getting going on cryptocurrency and Bitcoin over drinks. Um, I think your wife said you don't understand the the rabbit hole that you're opening. I know, I know. <laughs> Uh, and I was like, no, I think I do. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah, that's the part of being a geek, right? Is that you get excited about things and next thing you know, yeah. it's three hours yeah. later. Like, and I've been down that home. rabbit hole. It's not too bad. <laughs> All right. So let's, uh, we got we to gotta wind this back 
uh, back to close here. Two, two, two questions. First, first question. If you think about some of the beers that you helped get started, what are, yeah. what are some ones you want to give a shout out that you thought were really outstanding? Well, that's hard. So, um, as a as a lawyer, this is it is, and I'm sure it leaves a bunch of people not, out too. Well, and it, not necessarily that it leaves a bunch of people out, but it, as a lawyer, I have sort of attorney client <laughs> confidentiality exactly. problems. But some that I can talk about that have given me permission to talk yes. about them. Yeah, that I think are That I think are really cool. Yeah. Um, so, Mobcraft out of Milwaukee. Okay. Uh, very cool. Very innovative in the way they think about the craft beer industry. Um, the the idea for them is that they uh, they crowdsource the recipes. Uh, so you can submit a recipe, people in the mob craft community vote on the recipe, and then they make it and they'll mail it to you um, anywhere in the country. It's pretty That's cool. Neat idea. Yeah, it's a really neat idea. Um, that it has some legal challenges to sure. accomplishing that, right? A lot um, of things do. <laughs> and there's some. They have some distribution challenges. Whenever you whenever you have a model like that, where the model is to create a lot of different brands right and you know i'm sort of old school in this so i think back to the the days of when dogfish head was first getting started um my, my wife used to call dogfish head the ryan adams of beer and for those of you who are music people you might think that's funny because ryan adams like he doesn't have an editor like he just ever anything he makes just gets released out into the world and some of it's great and some of it's terrible right and so i always thought of dogfish head like that and i think mobcraft is sort of in the same vein is some of it's great some of it's terrible you could like have um, anchovy beer Right. Yeah. yeah. If okay. somebody if somebody submits a, you Send know, that's Send disgusting. If people <laughs> know, if somebody terrible. submits an anchovy mole beer and <laughs> that wins the thing, they get stuck making that. And so you can look at the, you can look at you can go back and see sort of the history of the things they got stuck making because of their model. And I mean, you just look at it and you go, there's no way it's going to be good. And it's not, but that's the model, right? Somebody somewhere went, Hey, it would be cool. They pre-sold it, right? They don't make it unless they pre-sell it. So somebody bought it uh, right. and it got, and it got made. Um, but some of their beer is great too. And they make a lot of very good beer as well. So, um, People thinking, you know, people thinking really cool about, you know, people thinking sort of innovatively about not just how do we make beer, but how do we change the business model of mm -hmm. beer? So yeah. I, I think uh, Henry and his team at Mobcraft are, are super cool. Um, the other team that I think is doing really well on the community scale uh, in based out of Madison is Working Draft. Um, they have created a community center. The guy that one of the owners, they have a number of owners, but one of the owners um, has an uh, MFA in poetry. Um, they have poetry slams. They have music. They have it's just sort of a community centered space that, um, that that the people on the east side of Madison have just really grown attached to in the very. I mean, it just opened earlier this year. Um, so hasn't been around very long, uh, but they've already become sort of a centerpiece of the community that they're a part of. Um, and so I think that's been, I think that's been really interesting at a macro scale at a much larger scale, not one of my clients. Um, but I think Lagunitas is really cool, man. They're doing their, um, they they think innovatively about how to get their beer in front of people. Um, but they're also, you know, they're jumping into um, 
you know, they're jumping into sort of new trends. They mm-hmm. recognize that marijuana is going to start eating into their into what they do. And mm-hmm. so they've been one of the early innovators in marijuana based drinks or, you know, THC uh, malt beverage products. Did they have Cheetos to go with it? <laughs> and, pizza, and pizza delivery <laughs> a cheetos flavored thc malt yeah, beverage there you a go whole ecosystem. Oh, my God. <laughs> um and so to some extent but it's it's looking out there and not being afraid of what you see as competition and sort of embracing that and thinking about how do we integrate that into what we do so that we can be a part of that yeah well, well, Jeff, it's been a it's been a pleasure speaking with you on the What Works podcast. Also, a great time uh, at the uh, the event this morning, uh, and and always always appreciate uh, your friendship and and the and the chats that we have. How can somebody get a hold of you if they have questions uh, related to legally uh, brewing or or distilling? Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm in most of the social medias, so at uh, JM Glazer on Twitter. Uh, I don't know, uh, usually some form of at JM Glazer on most of the social media places. Uh, email is a good place. Ogden Glazer, Schaefer, OGS dot law is our, uh, is our website. Pretty easy to find. Um, and then with, and then the law and entrepreneurship clinic is pretty easy to find too. Awesome. Well, thanks for being on the what works podcast. Yeah. The What Works Podcast is a production of Thinker Ventures. Learn more at thinkerventures.com.